The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Welcome to episode number 19 of the Paul Leslie Hour. And on this episode, we have a kind of behind-the-scenes guy. His name is Travis Turk. You could say that his whole life has been about sound. Let me explain what I mean there. He's done a lot of things that are related to sound. Right now, he's a voiceover artist. He's got one of those crisp, pleasant-to-hear voices that you maybe hear in a commercial or on the radio. Well, speaking of radio, he's also been on the radio as a personality. He's been an audio engineer and a record producer. Something that some of you might know about my broadcasting story is that it all started on a station called Radio Margaritaville, a station owned by Jimmy Buffett. Travis Turk was a name that I was aware of. He produced the very first two albums of Jimmy Buffett. They didn't create a tremendous amount of success or acclaim, but they were good songs. And Travis Turk's connection to Jimmy Buffett even predates those first two albums. Back when he was an unknown, as Bob Dylan might say, he recorded the early demos that Jimmy Buffett did in 1969 in Mobile, Alabama. He is joining us to talk about a number of things. When I did this interview back in the spring, I didn't know anything about this collection of Jimmy Buffett songs called Buried Treasure. And it consists of all of those early demos that Jimmy recorded. Very, very cool package. So, I'd like to give you a copy of that collection if you win the contest, which the contest is very simple. All you have to do is listen to this interview with Travis Turk and answer this question, which is going to be on my Facebook page, everything linked from thepaulleslie.com. What does Travis Turk say is one of his all-time favorite Jimmy Buffett songs? What does he say? It's in the interview here. Post your answer on the Facebook page. We'll have a drawing of sorts using random.org. And if you're one of the first few winners, the first two will get the deluxe package, which includes a DVD and a 40-page book. The other two will win the standard package, which is just the CD. Well, that's enough gabbing for now. I'm going to let Travis Turk take it over. Here's Travis Turk and I. It's safe to say... Much of Travis Turk's life has been about sound. He's worked in radio broadcasting, in music recording as a record producer, and as a recording engineer. These days, Travis Turk is a national voice actor, and he makes his home in Tennessee. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. This is a, it's a real pleasure. I was uh, talking to you earlier before we went on the air about who your audience was, and you mentioned Jimmy Buffett. And that's, of course, where most people out there that don't know who Travis Turk may have heard the name on the back of an album or something like that with Jimmy Buffett. But anyway, that's uh, maybe jumping the gun a bit. Well, where did your audio journey begin? I was raised in Mobile, Alabama, and when I was young, very young, I had a fascination with radio and music and and that, and I didn't know where that was taking me. I, I, I had no idea about the plans for the future. I just know it fascinated me. I liked it. 
And as I grew older, I wanted to be more a part of it. While I was in broadcasting and radio in Mobile, at the largest station that, that I eventually would work at, an AM station back in 1966, WUNI, and uh, I decided I, I, I wanted to record some, some bands in the area, and we had a, a place in the radio station called a production room that had a generous amount of microphones and the facilities to be able to record. So I would invite these bands to come in and just purely for fun, record them. And it became something that I've, I liked, that, that I was good at, not thinking at all that I would ever do it for a living. As time went on, I met a few other people in Mobile, John Ed Thompson, Milton Brown, and Nick Paniotu. We formed a corporation to build a recording studio and a, a publishing company, a record label, you know, our little empire in Mobile. And as we did that, we recorded some really interesting acts that came out of Mobile, one namely Wet Willie, and uh, they went on label, went on uh, to record with Capricorn after we couldn't do anything with them because we were a small company. We had a few small little hits, little local hits. And then as I moved on from that, deciding that, hey, you know, recording is a, is a career I might just want to, to uh, jump into, I happened to meet a, uh, a man who was peddling records. They used to come to the radio station to say, play my record and uh, give you free samples and so forth. And in passing, I mentioned the studio and he said, well, let me see what you have. He had some time to spend for the day. And so we went over, I showed him what I had and he said, hey, how would you like to come to work for us in Nashville? We're building a new studio and we're looking for people that don't aren't ingrained in the Nashville quote system. So so I said, well, I've got a vacation coming up. I will take my family up there and see. So in 1966, I took my wife and two young one year old twin girls to Nashville for a vacation, liked what I saw and started to work for a company called Spar. All the while keeping the interest that I had in Mobile and the studio, because what, what turned out to be a, a nice thing was they would send me acts of, that were passing through and ask me what I thought, uh, help them with uh, mastering their tapes that they recorded and so forth. One of those names was a guy named Jimmy Buffett. And the tape that was sent to me was a tape that had uh, six songs on it, just he and the, and the guitar. Now, keep in mind, I'm just an engineer. I'm brand new in Nashville. I really don't know a whole lot about the real commercial business, but I, I did know one thing. I knew I liked what I heard. I don't know what it was. I just liked it. And so um, as time progressed, I, I connected with Jimmy, went, went back to Mobile, and he was getting ready to, uh, to marry at the time. And uh, so I went to his wedding. As a matter of fact, recorded his wedding. Then uh, we discussed his future, what he wanted to do, and, you know, basically just said, I want to be a recording star. I said, well, you know, I'll, I'll do what I can. I don't know what I can do, but, you know, I like what you do. Come on to Nashville and let's just see what happens. So uh, he got married after that, after the marriage, and then he quit his job at the Admiral's Corner, which was a, uh, a bar in the hotel, the Admiral's, Admiral Sims Hotel in Mobile. Anyway, he uh, he came to, to Nashville, stayed with us a few days, and we went into the studio after hours and just recorded his stuff, all of his songs. I just said, I want to hear everything you've got, and I just rolled the tape and just let him sing. His uh, wife, Margie, was sitting in the corner in the control room reading a book, 
And Jimmy and I were having fun just listening and recording. Well, as time went on, I, uh, I, I, we, what we call fleshed out some of these songs. Uh, as I said, he re- had recorded them originally with his guitar and we took, we took some of the songs that we really, really liked that I liked. He liked them all. Of course, they were his children. And we got a few mis- musicians together and decided, Hey, this is, this will make a nice little demo. Well, we did, you know, maybe 10 songs that way out of the, I don't know, probably 30 or 40 songs that we recorded with just he and his guitar. And I took those songs and peddled them around to various companies with the help of a guy named Milton Brown, my partner in Mobile, who was also a singer, writer, publisher on his, in his own right, had, had some success. Anyway, we, we peddled the, the songs around and uh, the long, the, the short story is, is that a friend that I was working with at this company called Spar was a guy named Buzz Kaysen, and he liked what I presented him. I said, what do you think of this guy? And he said, I like him. Let, you know, let's, I'll, I'll tell you what I'll do. I will sign him to a writer's contract, and then you can produce the records through my production company. I said, well, that sounds great to me. So that's the beginning of the Jimmy Buffett saga. We, we recorded a couple of albums before he moved on to, in his mind, greener pastures. Then, uh, you know, we, we really didn't see much of each other after all of those years. As time moves on, about seven years ago, I uh, happened to look in a box and saw all of these guitar demos and other things that I had kept from, I'm a pack rat. I, I kept them and, I called Jimmy up one day. I said, look, I've, I've got all these tapes. You know, you, you really should think about a, a sort of a Genesis CD. You know, this is, this is the first stuff that I did. This is, these are the songs that I started writing when I was a young guy with hair on my head and, uh, a, a lot of spunk and vigor. And maybe, you know, maybe, uh, your, your, your fans would, would like to hear those songs. And uh, he he could not remember any of these songs. I presented him a list of probably 50 or 60 songs. And he looked through that list and said, you know, Travis, I can't remember any of this stuff. I'd love to hear it. Well, the long and short of it is seven years later, as a matter of fact, just last December, we decided uh, that uh, this would be a, a good project to uh, give to his fans. And so we, we recorded a DVD and a, a CD with some of those songs on it. And his description, his vocal description of how he came to start his relationship with me and Milton and, and, uh, and, and the studio that I had in Mobile and on all of these songs. And so um, look for that. That's going to be a really interesting project. I actually haven't seen the finished product itself, although I've lived with all of those tapes for uh, how many years has it been since 1966? So anyway, that's that's uh, my story about Jimmy Buffett, and I'm sticking to it. What is the title of this upcoming release you're talking about here? Well, if they haven't changed it, it's called Buried Treasure. I see. There had to have been a couple of songs from this collection that maybe stuck out in your mind like, wow, that's an interesting song. Or maybe even just the title being kind of interesting. What are some of the songs people can expect to hear or see? Well, 
I honestly don't know the final cut of the songs that will be on there, but some of the songs that stuck out to me were the first couple of songs that he actually did uh, on our little label in, in Mobile. It was called Don't Bring Me Candy and Abandoned on Tuesday. Those two songs were his first 45, and that 45 was made so that he could sell that at his gigs in the uh, Admiral's Corner. And those two songs were the ones that attracted me to him. And then there were others on that tape, like The Wino Has Something to Say, Rickety Lane, Hopelessly Gone. Let's see. We actually did record some songs in those years that actually made albums later on. Like The Captain and the Kid. That was one of my all-time favorite songs because... Not because of this, but I'd happened to meet Jimmy's grandfather, the captain, at his wedding. I remember at the reception, he was sitting in a window that overlooked Mobile Bay. And uh, I didn't know his history. All I knew was that, you know, here's this guy. He's sitting there and uh, I've got a drink in my hand and he's staring out at the, the, the water. And I just struck up a conversation with him. And I don't remember the conversation at all. But uh, I do remember that uh, he mentioned that he was his grandfather. And then later when we did The Captain and the Kid and I heard that story and I asked Jimmy, is this is this true? He said, oh, yeah, every bit of it's true. It was a real honor to meet the captain and the kid, of course, being Jimmy. Those are some of the songs that 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 stuck out in my in my memory that uh, that I really, really liked in the early Buffett years. Your memories of this man, Jimmy Buffett's grandfather you know you mentioned you didn't really remember the conversation but what was your overall impression of this guy my impression of of him was i don't know he seemed like a nice guy he was a very quiet contemplative he as i said he was staring out across uh, mobile bay from the the window that was on the I don't know, third or fourth floor of this particular hotel. So he probably would have had a a good view of the boats and the harbor and all of that overlooking the bay. Later, when I would hear that song, The Captain and the Kid, I would think of him looking out across the bay. And as I said, I don't remember a lot of the, the, I don't remember any of the conversation that we had, but I just remember him being a nice guy and, and having, we had a nice conversation some about Jimmy, I'm sure. And uh, and I told him what we had planned to do was to go to Nashville and try to strike it rich. You mentioned growing up in Mobile, Alabama, but you were born in Birmingham, correct? Mm-hmm. That's correct. Yeah, I only lived in Birmingham just a short while. My, uh, my parents, uh, who were deaf, by the way, my dad worked at the Birmingham News as a linotype operator. My mother worked at U.S. Steel, and Birmingham had a lot of huge steel companies, uh, and she worked for USS or U.S. Steel. And I lived there until I was maybe two. So I, I really don't have many memories of, of, of Birmingham. My, all of my memories are in Mobile. What was Mobile like during this time? In my recollection, a, a, a slow little southern town and slow, I mean, by, you know, not a lot of activity going on, although there were some national interest things going on in Mobile uh, that, that made us proud. We had the America's Junior Miss and then there was this 
national bowling tournament that was broadcast on ABC. We had the Senior Bowl, which was broadcast on NBC, if I remember. And, and so we had some national recognition. But other than that, it was uh, just, a, in my mind, a, a, a quiet place and a great place to grow up. We had lots to do. It wasn't a large town. It wasn't a small town. You know, it was a perfect town for me, for this guy growing up. What kind of music did you most enjoy when you were growing up? <laughs> My first recollection of music was on a radio station called WKAB. It was an AM station, and they had a show called the Tom and Jack Show, Tom Jackson and Jack Cardwell. And basically, they would just chit-chat back and forth do a few commercials, sing a few songs, play a few records. And that was my first introduction to music, was listening to that when I was in the first grade, as I recall, on my little Zenith radio, which I still have, by the way. And I guess that's that's the influence that I had. And they played country music, although the first radio station that I worked for only played country music in the afternoon, and I didn't play it. I played easy listening music. So when they handed me the country show, I had no idea of what to play. So even though I had brought, been brought up and introduced to music in country, it, it was foreign to me to play it on the radio, but I did learn and I did learn to like it again. So that was the introduction that I had to, to, to music. And as time went on, I enjoyed as a, as a teenager at the formation of, of rock and roll music in the, uh, what, 55 to 65, I, I enjoyed a whole lot rock and roll. You know, you had to do that as a teenager. Your peers wouldn't, wouldn't ever let you forget it if you liked Hank Williams. Rock and roll was great. And I, I still enjoy listening to, uh, 50s and 60s rock and roll a lot. But I, I like all kinds of music. Who was the first musician, singer or otherwise that you produced? Well, actually, Jimmy was the first one that I produced. After that, there were some smaller acts through the years that uh, that we, we tried to, to bring along, people that your audience certainly wouldn't know. But I didn't have any success in the production. We did have a few releases, and uh, you know they, they creeped up into the charts a little bit, uh, both country and pop, but you know, nothing significant. I did, however record some weren't celebrities then but they were they were later to be celebrities i remember the first musical session that i did with a, a person that would later become a celebrity was uh, chris christopherson i remember this session vividly uh, it was called a demo session which means that you know this was only for to put the song down on tape so that they could present it to artists to record and one of the songs we recorded on that session was Sunday Morning Sidewalk. That was the title of it then. I think they later changed it to Sunday Morning Coming Down. Chris came into the session. I remember him being a tall, thin guy, and he wore a white shirt, a short sleeve shirt with a thin tie. He actually wore a tie to the session. And anyway, he sang four or five songs, and the pack rat that I am, I kept that tape. Because it was uh, one of the first things that I had recorded as a young engineer in Nashville. And even though he wasn't famous, I just kept it and put it in a little box. Well, fast forward to 1999, 2000, somewhere in there. 
I was working at a place that uh, did interviews, and, and one of the persons to be interviewed was a guy named Chris Christopherson. And I thought, well, hey, you know, I think I'll get that tape out and look at it again. I pulled the tape out and looked at it, and I had misspelled his name, Chris with a C and Christopherson, with, I think with a C maybe again. Anyway, he came in, and I said, look, before we start, I want to show you something. So I showed him the tape. And uh, I happened to have it queued up to to a Sunday morning coming down, Sunday morning sidewalk. And, uh, and I said, take a listen to this. So I played him the demo, which he hadn't heard since 1969. <laughs> and he listened to it, and his head is down. And, he's, and the first thing he says, I could not hit that key if my life depended on it. His voice, of course, had dropped a low, lot lower. Anyway, he was fascinated, and his wife was with him, and uh, we we chatted a bit, and then we did the the the, uh, the demo. He told me that they were just in the production of doing exactly what we're doing with Jimmy now, which is gathering up all of his early stuff and making these demos available as a package, a CD package. I don't know what happened with that, and I don't understand why that they didn't have uh, this Sunday morning sidewalk on the on the project. Anyway, that's uh, that's something that. Uh, will remain a question mark. But anyway, that was the first celebrity that, that I recorded as a, a music session. Going back to Jimmy Buffett here, so it's correct to say that the first artist that you produced, Jimmy Buffett, his first album was also the first for you. Yeah, first one. What are your recollections of making that album, Down to Earth, his very first? Well, we didn't record it as an album, actually. or I told you earlier that we had recorded these demos, these fleshed out demos, and most of those those songs were part of the album package. When we packaged up this these 12 songs and presented it to Mike Shepard, who was the head of the label here in town for uh, Barnaby Records, which was owned by Andy Williams, he liked everything about it. And I said, OK, well, great. Give us some money. and We'll go in and recut everything. He says, no, no, no. We want to keep what you have. We like what you've got. I said, but. We can have, I was the drummer on the thing, and, and I said, I, you know, we can get a better drummer. We can, you know, we can clean all this up and make it more presentable. He said, no, we really like, we like this. Hmm. And both Buzz Kaysen and I shook our heads, and, and I said, well, look, we're going to take some of the money, and we actually are going to recut some of these things. And we did that on our own and took our, <laughs> our what little money they gave us to recut some of the things, and that became the first album. So some of the songs that are on there, I'm still playing drums, and uh, we had friends like Bob Cook, who was Jimmy's mentor back in Mobile at the uh, at the club he first played in. He played bass on some of the things, like the first song on the album is called "The Christian Question Mark," which was written co-written by Milton Brown. Everything else was written by Jimmy on that album. Let's see, we had some friends that I had gathered up, musician friends, to, to play on the album. So that's what you hear. And actually, in retrospect, for something that was cut as mostly demos back in 1969, actually sounds pretty good. I go back and listen to it occasionally and wonder how in the world we did as good as we did with the limited resources that we had. And what about the second album from Jimmy Buffett, High Cumberland Jubilee? You produced that as well. Yes, but that was recorded as an album. We actually had a concept in mind. Both Jimmy and Buzz Kaysen wrote most of the songs for the album. 
And so uh, we recorded this concept album from beginning to end. In other words, it's a storyline that begins with the first take all the way through. I think it had 12 cuts on it all the way through the 12th cut. Although it didn't do very well, it has some really interesting stuff on it. You have to recall that in that time, in the, in the, in the late, late 60s, early 70s, this was the time of the Vietnam War, flower power, you know, the hippies. And so that, that kind of was where we were. And so Jimmy wrote about what he knew, and that was all of that. So a lot of the songs that he wrote about were, you know, about the war and, you know, why we shouldn't be in the Vietnam and, and the crazy LSD popping kids and hippies and that kind of thing. And it revolved around that, although that wasn't entirely a, but th- this album. The, it did contain some of those elements. And these days you are a voice actor and you do voiceovers. How did you make the transition from music to doing that? Well, earlier I told you that I was in, in radio. You know, I, I worked for several radio stations thinking that's really what I wanted to do was to be a disc jockey. As I said, that didn't pan out um, because I found recording. Because I had experience in broadcasting, I had, you know, I was able to, to know how to read scripts and, and uh, to announce. So as I decided I was going to retire from the retire from the music business and recording engineering and all of that, I decided, what am I going to do at home? I had been told by many friends, you know, you don't you don't want to do any you want you you don't want to do nothing. You want to do something to keep your mind occupied. And I said, well, you know, I like I like uh, talking. I like uh, reading commercials and uh, that kind of thing. So why not just uh, put a little studio in my home and uh, in my spare time, read some of this stuff. So. As I retired about seven years ago, I, I, I started to drift into it. And uh, next thing I knew, I had, you know, all of these clients that were uh, uh, sending me scripts to read and uh, became a, a really nice, nice business. Keeps me busy while in my <laughs> my uh, older years. Tell us about some of the more memorable projects you've done as a voice actor. Well, recently, uh, I was signed by NBC to do commercials for the Winter Olympics and the now defunct Celebrity Apprentice. And uh, I did some work for PBS for the uh, Ken Burns special, I guess you call it, uh, National Parks. I've done commercials for Wrangler Jeans, for Can-Am Defender, Lear Capital, Mr. Rooter. Not only commercials and promos, which those are, but uh, the things that I call industrials are things like um, I'm the voice of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Museum. So when you go in there and you you go up to a kiosk or sit down in front of a, a movie screen, you will hear me and Ronald Reagan talking about things in his presidential life. Same thing with the George W. Bush Presidential Museum. And I've done political campaigns. I do Lots of commercials for casinos around the country, for banks. Healthcare is a big issue right now with the baby boomers hitting the markets. And, and so I do a lot of healthcare commercials. TV promos for television stations. The biggest one I've got is WRNN in, in New York. And I've done many international industrials things. Uh, one of my biggest clients is in Turkey and, uh, this is one of the hardest things that I have to do. They send me the English version, although it has a lot of Turkish names. And so I have to learn to pronounce these in a very Turkish way, which is very difficult. So, uh, yeah, 
that's some of the things that I, I recall. Is there anything that you especially would like to do that you haven't yet? Well, uh, as it relates to the business that I'm in now, I'd like to just settle into doing what are called promos for radio and TV stations and just some small commercials that, uh, when, when I say small, I'm talking about 30 seconds. <laughs> those are the things that, that I'm, I'm doing mostly now, and I would really like to just continue doing those. And, um, you know, more high-profile stuff, of course, is nice to talk about. Do you have any stories about where you were in a place, maybe, that unexpectedly you heard a voice and you thought, that sounds like me, and it was? <laughs> Happens all the time. <laughs> yeah? Uh, yeah. Yeah. My memory is, what I like to do with these things is record them and forget them. Just, you know, open up the space for for new, brighter frontiers in my head. So I've really pushed, pushed them out of my memory and I'll be uh, sitting in front of the television watching a show, and halfway through a commercial, I'll realize that's me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, so uh, the next time I hear it, of course, I'm, I'm aware that it's out there and it's playing, and then I'll I'll uh, remember it. But uh, it happens all the time. One interesting thing that happened back when I started about seven or eight years ago doing it uh, full time was I had done a I'll call it a a, a, a kiosk for the Tennessee Aquarium in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and uh, it was on otters, and it was just a few paragraphs on about otters, how they live, and where they, uh, you know, what they do, uh, you know, that kind of thing. You know, you stare in this exhibit and see them uh, jumping around, and you hear my voice. Totally forgot about it, and my grandkids were taken to the aquarium, and as they were standing in front of the otter exhibit, it started to play, and my five-year-old granddaughter said that's granddaddy and my daughter said well it sure is so she came back and said uh, did you do something for the tennis yeah i said i think i did uh so that's another example of just you know record it forget it get the check and move on <laughs> i don't know if people ever compare you in terms of your speaking voice to other people but your cadence many times I've been thinking this throughout the interview, is similar somewhat to Alan Coulter's. Oh, oh yeah, the uh, the announcer on The Tonight Show. Or The Late Show with Letterman. The Late Show, yeah, that's right, yeah. Oh, really? I hadn't thought about that. Well, that's a compliment, I think. I think you, well, you both you. have great, great voices. Well, thanks. Whose voice do you admire? Um, none stick out, though. I, I like the guys that have a... Um, a real strong recall about any subject and can just rattle it off and, and do it in a, a very professional way. No names come to mind. As I said, I don't uh, idolize any particular guy, but uh, those those types of announcers I like a lot. Looking on your website, and for all the listeners out there, they can visit TravisTurk.com. You've met many, many iconic people in uh, lots of walks of life. Who were you very impressed by? Let's see. Let's see. I'm struggling to remember his name now. Just totally blanked out. Oh, yeah. Okay. Got a good story for you. Well, the, the person that impressed me probably the most of any celebrity that I've ever met was Garth Brooks. I was in a session with him once, and um, once we had finished this hour, hour and a half's worth of work, which for most 
celebrities was a drudgery, but uh, he came out with a smile on his face and uh, signed a few autographs for the people that, that asked him. And, uh, and the one guy that asked for an autograph said, this one's for my daughter who is in the hospital. And his, I, I saw him perk up. And uh, he said, well, what's, what's, hap- what's wrong? He said, well, she's in the hospital for, and he named some disease. Well, where is she? What, what, what hospital is she in? Well, she's in St. Mary's in Louisville. And without saying a word, he picked up the phone and asked for the, the hospital, asked for her, her room number, got her and said, well, hi, this is Garth Brooks. And I was just told your story and I just wanted to wish you well and, and uh, hope that you're going to feel a lot better and, um, and and my the stock in Garth Brooks, as far as I'm concerned, went sky high. I just thought this guy is for real. I like this guy a lot. And there are several other stories that I could tell you about Garth that are very similar, that are just like that. They they just he's just a a, a real honest person. So what was the circumstance of you uh, of you working with Mr. Brooks? My second uh, career in uh, engineering was as a uh, post engineer, which means that I record voices for uh, movies, for television, for radio interviews, for that kind of thing. And so I w- a whole list of, of stars would, would come into the, to the studio and uh, we would record them. And uh, he was on that list. He was recording what are called liners. Hi, this is Garth Brooks and you're listening to WXYZ. You know, that kind of thing. He was, you know, he'd do an hour and a half of those things. And that's a, a lot of what I did uh, during that, that time at this particular uh, studio. Other people on that list were, well, like Bill Anderson of the Grand Ole Opry, Mel Tillis, uh, Crystal Gale, Reba McIntyre, Eddie Arnold, Chet Atkins, Winona, and, oh, yeah, I remember one uh, that would be interesting is uh, the Chipmunks. The guys, the guy that does his voice, uh, or their their voice, is a guy named Ross Bagdasarian. And by the time that I came around to the Chipmunks, of course Ross had 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 uh, passed, and 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 his son had taken over the duties. So we recorded, and and I learned how to record the Chipmunks. There was a there's a way to actually slow the tape of the slow the speed of the tape down. So many inches per second and when it's played back at a normal speed it'll be at a higher pitch and you do three of those different kinds of pitches and that became alvin and simon and theodore's voices anyway that was fun doing that we did that for a whole day and uh, it's very very hard work you know because you're you're really concentrating on the technical aspect rather than on the creative aspect but he he had it he had it uh, together as far as the uh, the creative part of it he knew exactly where he was going and some of the other people like uh, George Jones and um, Keith Urban, uh, Carrie Underwood, you know, people like that that have drifted in and out of my life as far as a recording engineer. Uh, it's very rewarding. And during some of that time, I took some of those pictures, and those are the pictures that you see on the on the website. What <laughs> is your favorite sound in the whole world? <laughs> my favorite sound? I don't have a favorite sound, although occasionally I will I will hear a sound and say, oh, I like that. But I don't uh, categorize it as a favorite. Are you someone who listens to a lot of things? I do. I listen to things that a lot of people don't hear. There's a thing called room tone, which is if you just quietly 
stop and listen in any room, there is a sound to that room. It'll be a combination of maybe air conditioning, the refrigerator running maybe. There's a combination of sounds. It may be the wind outside whistling through the windows. And every room has a sound, and I will stop usually and just listen to the sound of that room. I got that um, from working in television and movies when you have to replace a lot of that room tone, they call it. And because when you record an actor on a stage or out in the outside, a lot of that has to be stripped out because it's different. Every time you, you cut it up, the sound, the, the, the natural sound will, will change. So you strip it all out and you're left with just the voice and then you put back the sound in there. So I became aware of, of, of room tones and just sounds in general like that. What has your career in these various facets of everything from entertainment to media, radio, broadcasting, a very, very audio-centric career, what has it taught you? You know, uh, that, that's a tough question, but I, one of the, the first thing that came to my mind was I told you earlier that my parents were deaf, and I can't help but believe that because they were deaf, I have a keener aware of sound that they that they did not have and so i'm more aware of of sounds that are around me so i just appreciate sound in any form i like it when it's recorded well i like it when it sounds good and i will comment on it to my wife who to her dismay doesn't like it she 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 wants to enjoy her movie and her television without me saying Golly, that voice is distorted. Now, why did they record that with so much high end? You know, all of that stuff. So, <laughs> to, to that degree, I guess it's uh, it's not good. But that, that I've become a fan of the sound of of a lot of things, but uh, nothing that's to my detriment. I don't think. What is the best thing about being Travis Turk? <laughs> oh wow! What is the best thing about being Travis Turk? I don't know. I've had a great life. I don't point to any one particular thing. I've had a lot of great things to happen in my life. And we talked a lot about Jimmy Buffett and people constantly ask me about him and our relationship and all of that. And that's nice. Uh, the celebrities that I've worked with and all of that's nice. But I have a great family and, uh, they ignore a lot of that stuff every now and then. I think, uh, my, uh, third granddaughter will, will ask me, uh, you mean Jimmy Buffett slept on that couch right there? And, you know, I'll say, well, yeah, but, and I'll just try to forget it. You know, it's nothing to me, but to her, it's like, I did not know that. She's 25 years old now. I did not know that. I don't uh, impress those things on my family, but they occasionally bring it up. Hmm. So what would you say to anyone listening in just from a totally human to human kind of perspective? You have the opportunity to say whatever you want to the people out there. What would you say to them? Oh, hmm. well, you know, one of the things as I've grown older and grown in this business and seen a lot of of different people and uh, in this business and even outside the business go through their life. The one thing that that really has has impressed me the most is. What do I value 
in life. And I've come to this conclusion that family is probably the most important part in my life. You know, I value all of my family. I don't care what they've done in their life. And everybody makes mistakes. They do things they wish they hadn't have done, whatever. But they're still my family and I still love them. And I try to treat them with the utmost respect as a son or daughter or grandson, granddaughter. I even have great grandchildren and uh, I know they're going to all grow up to be different, but I, I, I want to respect each of their lives. And that's the kind of thing that I try to, every, as we gather, we just gathered for, for Easter, uh, most of us, and some were not able to be there for, for reasons that were beyond our control and theirs. You know, we gather and the first thing that, 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 that we do before we chow down and we do that real good is as we pray and just thank God for our family and for what we have. You know, that's, that's the, 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 one of the things that, that has really, really made me a, I think a better person is to having a great family around me. And uh, my faith has, has really helped me make the right decisions in life. So, you know, if I were going to impart anything to anyone, it would be think about, Think about your family and, and what even if they have not done what you think they should have, have done, they, they are yours. That's your family. And sometimes that's all you've got. Sometimes it's all you have. That's what I am focused on in my uh, latter years in my life is my family. And that's what I would share and impart to anybody that, you know, that would ask me. And thanks for asking for that. Well, thank you so much for joining us and sharing so much. Anyone out there, they can visit TravisTurk.com for more information. I've really appreciated this opportunity. Well, it's been uh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for, for having me. All right, sir. Well, have a great day. Well, thank you. You too. All right. Take it easy. Okay, Paul. Take care. To me, this was an example of an interview that in the beginning, I thought it was about one thing, the whole Jimmy Buffett connection. And it was about that, but as I listened, especially at the end, what resonated with me the most was him talking about his family and about how interesting it is that his life ended up being about sound, in many respects, yet his parents could not hear. I really like talking to Travis Turk. He seems like such a genuine person. For more information on him, you can visit TravisTurk.com. If you want more information on this collection of old Jimmy Buffett recordings, go to MailboatRecords.com. Totally different subject. There's this Facebook show I've watched the first episode of. Uh, It came out today, and it's with Bill Murray and his brother, Brian Doyle Murray. It's called Extra Innings, and... It comes out every Monday, and I just have to say, I'm really, really enjoying it. I hope that you check it out. I was talking today to the executive producer of the show, Dub Cornette, and there's a good chance we'll be doing an interview. He seems like a very interesting guy. And about that contest, again, the question was, what did Travis Turk say was one of his all-time favorite Buffett songs? Just post your answer on the Facebook page for the Paul Leslie Hour, and you will be in a drawing that will be held on Thanksgiving Day 
to see who is the winner. That's right. All you have to do is answer. I've got two of the deluxe packages, two of the standard. I'm looking forward to giving them away because I think you're going to enjoy them. If you haven't subscribed to the Paul Leslie Hour, I suggest you do so. It's totally free. We're everywhere. We're on iTunes, Stitcher Radio. I've really been enjoying this podcast app, CastBox. Really, really cool app. Great way to listen. Also, consider rating and reviewing us anywhere that you can. It helps other people find this podcast. Well, folks, that's all I've got. Until next time. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. For information, visit thepaulleslie.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time.